It's my great pleasure now to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Simon Romero. Mr. Rom <laughs> Mr. Romero is a national correspondent for the New York Times, covering immigration. Now based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he previously served as the New York Times Brazil Bureau Chief from 2011 to 2017, covering Brazil and Latin America. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Simon Romero. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, the rest of our panel, and it's a pleasure having, uh, being here today with all of you. What a, I always love coming to Los Angeles from Albuquerque. Um, I'll start off with David Hayes Bautista, who is a medical sociologist and director of the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture at the UCLA School of Medicine. His latest book is titled La Nueva California, Latinos from Pioneers to Post-Millennials. Uh, we also have Patricia Greenfield, who is a professor of psychology at UCLA, where she studies the relationship between culture and human development. And she also directs UCLA's Bridging Cultures Project, a cross-cultural education initiative. And uh, we also have Dean Hansel, who is a judge on the California Superior Court in Los Angeles, focusing on family law. He has previously served as an assistant attorney general for Illinois and as a police commissioner for the city of Los Angeles. Um, so I'm just going to kick things off by uh, sort of continuing a, a brief discussion that we were having backstage, and which kind of delves a little bit into the, the history of the moment that we're experiencing now. Uh, there's, there's been a noticeable increase in, in vitriol coming from different levels of government, different parts of society. And um, it does seem extremely jarring uh, for this to be happening. But I was wondering, what are the, what are the origins of this? Where, where have we seen this before, both in California and on a national level? Well, the good news, or maybe it's bad news, is this is not anything new at all. I um, published a book last year, this one, La Nueva California, in which I looked at Latinos in California from 1810 to now. And it's interesting. In 1810, when Mexico declared independence, Father Hidalgo also declared racial equality and citizenship, abolition of slavery. This is 1810, like 50 years before Lincoln. And continued uh, that married women had property rights independent of their husband. That was the law of the land here in Los Angeles, right where we stand. We had abolished slavery in 1810. But in 1848, we become part of the United States. This new constitution allows slavery, denies citizenship to non-whites, and when a woman marries, she suffered legal death. Latinos said, mm, we don't think that's real progress. So a bunch of Latinos, including Jose Antonio Carrillo from LA, went to Monterey, said, we're going to help you write this constitution. We are Americans. And the California constitution continued Mexico's abolition of slavery, allowed non-whites to become citizens, continued that married women had legal rights, and we came in as a bilingual state. However, the price was very high. It was the Compromise of 1850 because there was not an accompanying slave state. Remember Missouri Compromise? Mm -hmm. Slave and free state. We had the gold. We became a state without a slave state, but the slave states won everything else. And in 1855, I don't know where it comes, remember the American Know Nothing Party? Virulently anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, wanted to, in fact, remove naturalization from all naturalized Latinos and very close slavery. They won the national elections. They swept California. They took office. They had the governor. They had both houses. And within a year, they fell. 
20 years later, at the end of Reconstruction, Dennis Kearney, remember him? The Chinese must go. And also he wanted to get rid of Latinos. He couldn't get rid of Latinos, but he got rid of the bilingual provisions. Dennis Kearney's Working Man's Party swept the state elections, and within a year, they fell. 20 years later, 1895, the American Protective Association. Protecting what? America. From whom? From immigrants, from Catholics. Does this start sound familiar? They swept the elections. Within six months, the government fell. After World War II, the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan, finally California segregates itself. 1930s, the massive deportations of Mexicans. 1950s, Operation Wetback. 1970s, English only. 1990s, Proposition 187. And 20 years to the day, Donald Trump comes down the tower in Trump Tower and announces that Mexicans are criminals and assassins and rapists. Every 20 years, we've had to deal with this outbreak of natives. So it's really nothing new. It's an old U.S. tradition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and uh, Patricia, I mean, there, there's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, Follow that. <laughs> that's right. Get the book. <laughs> you know, political insults and uh, just uh, xenophobic rhetoric um, all of it coming from the very top of our society, of our government. Uh, w what effect does this have on, on students, on children who are either immigrants themselves or who are children of immigrants mm -hmm. who are trying to make their way and, and, and lift themselves up? Mm -hmm. What happens? Well, let me um, I come from the point of view of psychological science and mm -hmm. talk about... Um, the findings of one of, of two of my colleagues, Sarah Tajian and Adriana Galvan, who right after the election of Trump did a study over the, the next four months to find out who felt affected by the election and why. So she had them write down why they felt affected. And I wanted to read some of the quotes, because you'll see the huge diversity of uh, people of social categories that feel threatened for all different but reasons, but all related to this racist rhetoric. So here's one. One uh, person in the study wrote, I feel that people have historically discriminated against minorities like me will now feel safe in openly displaying their prejudice towards me and others. Another one, I think I will be personally affected because I believe this president will only spread more racism and hate towards my people. Third person, since I am gay, I feel like hateful people will feel emboldened to discriminate against me. Fourth person. Many of my family members are scared they will be deported. The overall social climate around me seems to have become more negative, especially when it comes to immigration and equal rights. Although nothing racist has happened yet to me, I feel like the likelihood of something happening will increase these coming years. Number five, he or she wrote, as a person of color, I feel this election has emboldened many to disregard, discriminate, and deny the experiences and realities of people like me. I fear for my life and my families and my friends and friends' families' lives. 
another one. You can stop me when mm -hmm. I've gone too far. So I just have four more. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can stop me anytime. Okay. Um, you're getting the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, this this one. My girlfriend and her family's undocumented. I fear that the results of the U.S. presidential election will affect that status. As a Hispanic, I feel targeted as a minority by people who do not like my race. Another one. My mother is undocumented, and I have disabled relatives that rely on the Affordable Care Act that Trump is repealing. I fear my mom is going to be deported or experience more overt racism because she's undocumented. Now, now th this does seem like a, a great amount of stress to deal with it, it at, is. A, at a young age. Let, mm -hmm. let me, well, these, this group was um, between 18 and 30. I don't mm -hmm. know how sure. old these particular ones were. But let, so, so far we have a gay person, we have a Latino, we have somebody who fears racism. Now the next one is somebody as a woman, okay? She goes, as a woman, I feel that certain rights, such as the right to reproductive care, are being threatened. I'm also the daughter of an immigrant and have had experience being racially profiled and feel that these events will only increase during um, Trump's presidency. And oh, I have two more categories. Mm -hmm. uh, next one, I am an African-American woman, so this election will affect laws not only for my health rights, but also create even more tension for minorities in everyday life. And the next one has to do with the Muslim ban. So you see every category mm -hmm. is threatened. With all that has happened lately in regards to the Muslim ban, I believe that legislation will be passed that enforces stronger immigration laws Ultimately, I can see both of my parents being deported. This worries me a lot. Troublesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incredibly so. Um, that, that leads me to my next question for uh, Judge Hansel, who I should uh, point out is, is, as, a, as a judge here in California is under similar restrictions about uh, expressing political opinions as we are at the New York Times. So I'm going to try to tiptoe around um, certain issues with this with this query of mine. And it, it relates to um, my time as a foreign correspondent when I was uh, based in Venezuela for five years and, and uh, just covering the, the intensification of an authoritarian regime there and, and how, that, how that came to impact uh, the legal system and the erosion of, of judicial independence. Um, you know, there, there is a, a a broader questioning taking place now in the United States, and this is something that we might have thought unthinkable just a few years ago, that people may be losing faith in, in having an independent judiciary and in realizing the value uh, of, of independent courts. Um, uh, from your position as a judge, is this something that you're, that you're seeing in day-to-day -day workings of the courts here in Los Angeles? Well, certainly the very reason I can't um, talk about politics, get into political issues, I think mm -hmm. relates to that because we are the independent branch of government and anybody that comes before us um, has to feel that irrespective of their political beliefs or ideology, they're going to get a fair shake um, with us. And, and, um, and I think with um, a lot of the discussions that have taken place um, now in the media. It certainly has reinforced for all of us on the judiciary in California the, the importance 
um, of that particular point, and, and um, we're um, really the, um, the court of the people, I think even more than the federal courts, which are, of course are the ones that are in the headlines. Um, right now, when people um, access a court system in the United States, odds are it's going to be on the state level um, rather than um, the federal level. Um, and, um, and that's even more so in California, where we have such a high percentage of our, um, our citizens and our residents here that, um, that um, are um, non-English speaking or very poor, many of them who um, have um, either themselves immigrants or have immigrants in their families. And it's just, um, and it really becomes very important for us. We don't have budgets, we don't have armies behind us. Um, the, the, um, the great power that we have is in the integrity of the process um, that we have, and which is why um, we don't fight back. Um, when we get criticized um, publicly, we have to depend on other people um, to do that. And when we have to call, make decisions the way we see them. So for example, in um, family law or other areas, we do not inquire as to immigrant status. It's not relevant. Um, the immigrant status. Um, and um, we get into questions. I'm always having to decide questions like, all right, who's the better parent? And um, often um, I'll get, um, um, there's a lot of mud that goes back and forth. One of the um, mud balls that goes flying by sometimes is, well, that parent, referring sometimes to their spouse of 12 years, that parent over there is undocumented, and if you give the kids to that parent, they may, um, they may have to go back over the border, therefore they're not a suitable parent. Things of that sort, and so um, as part of our um, independence, you, you learn to sort of uh, um, weed out um, issues mm -hmm. of that sort. Um, my next question can be for anyone who wants to jump in. Um, and uh, it's just also related to an observation that I've had just since moving back to the country last year. I, I came from Brazil where they have very specific legislation about racist language and rhetoric where if, if someone uses certain terms, uh, the police are called and they're arrested and they're, they're uh, prosecuted and put in jail. And this has happened time and again, and it's, in, it's happening increasingly in Brazil. Um, other countries have similar laws. South Africa uh, does Germany, and I think we helped them to write their constitution after the war, in fact. So, um, uh, you know, is it time, perhaps, to have a, a discussion about the First Amendment in this country and what protections it does provide for, but also the abuses that that may unfold um, in a society that cherishes free speech so much that, that such vitriol can, can advance. Um, one, uh, one of the, the dangers, is, of course, is with the First Amendment if you start drawing lines. I mean, many of the great First Amendment speeches um, come up in the context of um, the defense of people that you might not like. I mean, Nazis, for example, or um, other um, people like that. You never have a First Amendment um, case where you're defending a member of the Garden Club. Um, it's, um, it's, it's always something of that sort. And, and so um, it's the, the people have a legal right to use um, speech that makes um, 
that makes people very uncomfortable because that really is, that's what the First Amendment is all about. Now, is it, um, is it relevant to some of the things we do in the courts? Um, indeed, it is. I mean, if I could just give you an example on it, which is in the area of domestic violence. Um, and there are a variety of um, factors that you look at in a domestic violence case. And certainly, um, one of them could be um, where you've got the alleged perpetrator and you've got the victim. And the alleged perpetrator may be engaged in um, certain types of hate speech um, against the perpetrator. Um, there you can see how it could be relevant to it. Now let's say it's a, the, um, the victim um, is Chinese American and the, um, the perpetrator goes after them and uses lots of anti-Chinese um, uh, rhetoric. That's something that's, um, that is very um, relevant in that context. And there are other ones um, of that sort um, mm -hmm. as well. But so it's a, it's, um, it's a bit of a balance. It's not, in that case, it's really outside of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, but, but most of our First Amendment um, cases, if you ever look at them going way back in time, mm -hmm. um, it's certainly cases that, um, um, that where somebody did something um, that made people uncomfortable. A famous one in L.A. County was um, in the very early years of the war in Vietnam in the L.A. Superior Court. Somebody walked in there um, wearing a coat that said, fuck the draft, um, and was taken into custody. Hmm. Um, and uh, that was an example, and it went up, and they said, you know, that may be, um, uh, that may be rude, um, but it's protected by the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a different Please, Patricia, yeah. perspective mm -hmm. on it. I study social change and cultural change, and a huge trend in social change is growing individualism. We've always been individualistic, but we're getting more and more individualistic by many measures. Okay, if we can't do anything, very clear, I would like, personally like to see something like that happen. But if we can't do anything with the amendment about the right to bear arms, which obviously was in a different time, a different context, and different arms, and if now it's interpreted that everybody can have machine guns, we're certainly not going to do anything about curbing free speech. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'd like to add in a little historic perspective. Uh, although I'm at the School of Medicine, I've become a real student of the American Civil War. And talk about fake news and false narratives. Read the Richmond Examiner right after the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, slaves are fine. They're happy. We love them. They would never run away. And Lee's going to whip me sooner or later. Oh, by the way, runaway slave, runaway slave, runaway slave. But everything is just great. Does this sound familiar? And the narratives leading up to the Civil War, uh, pro and anti-slavery and everything else. And as I read some of this, I think, wow, the fake news actually is an ancient American tradition. We fought a civil war over this. 750,000 people died because some groups wanted to set up an independent country built on slavery and white supremacy. This is not the first time we have gone through this. And indeed, the same issues that led up to the civil war, which California helped precipitate because it had been part of Mexico, are still here. And by the way, the Cinco de Mayo, was created here in Los Angeles during the American Civil War as part of the Latino experience of the American Civil War. And it was created to show the world that Latinos opposed slavery, supported freedom, opposed white supremacy, supported racial equality, 
and opposed elitist rule and supported the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I believe Benito Juarez said that before mm -hmm. Lincoln. Um, so I'd like to ask, and anyone else can jump in here too, but maybe this is a question for you, David. I don't know. Okay. Um, what happens, what about the durability of leaders who are elected at, at times like these? Um, you know, leaders who, who find, uh, you know, a group that is, that is doing everything wrong and they, they attribute blame to this group and well, they use populist rhetoric, they, mm -hmm. you know, they, they talk is, the language mm -hmm. of the streets and... We've seen this, again, mm -hmm. every 20 years, starting with the American Know Nothing Party. They would win elections almost every time, just by vast majorities. The reason why their governments fall is because they cannot govern. They cannot pave the streets, they cannot make decisions, they cannot create coalitions, because in a democracy, eventually it is majority rule, which is why they fall, they cannot govern. We're seeing a similar case, a president who cannot govern, uh, he cannot pull together coalition, he cannot negotiate them. That's what you have to do in politics, you have to find the middle road somewhere. And that has been the history ever mm -hmm. since 1855. You have to govern at some point. You have to pick up the garbage. You have to clean You have to streets. produce results? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, you now, just picking up a little bit on, on the, uh, the president's trip to Europe uh, this past week. Uh, you know, I guess we have a before Finland moment and an after Finland moment. And uh, I just want to ask about the the before Finland uh, sort of sentiment. And this is a question for you, Patricia. I mean, uh, when, um, when we have a leader with the stature and the power and the projection, uh, such as the President of the United States, who, who uses certain terms, um, who disparages regularly certain groups of people in society, um, who's, who you know, uses language such as infestation, um, to describe things that are happening in the, in the United States. Um, what, uh, you know, how, do, how does that translate for, for some of the students that you might have? Um, you know, for people who are, you know, the first generation in their family to, to go to college, yeah. and they're dealing with the demands and the stresses of normal student life and adapting mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, well, we did a mm -hmm. study about that, and the lead author's here. I don't know, if, I can't see, but are you here inside? Uh, okay, it's mm -hmm. Dr. Yolanda Vasquez Salgado. And our experiment was not planned to be about Donald Trump, but by chance it happened that half the participants took part in the experiment before Donald Trump and the other half after. Okay, the participants were, as you mentioned, first generation Latino college students at UCLA. Although most of them were born in the United States, 98% had at least one parent born in a Latin American country. So the, the quotes I gave before showed the emotional impact. This experiment shows the cognitive impact, the impairment of thinking. So it was a cognitive experiment. It was a very simple um, cognitive task, which I won't explain, but, um, it was simple, but you needed to concentrate in order to do it. You needed to focus your attention. Um, so it took concentration, it took attentional control. So before taking this cognitive test, 
one group of participants was asked to write a paragraph about their family responsibilities. Um, they were asked to list and describe all of the things your family would like you to do with them or for them, like spending time with them on the weekends, attending family events, helping them with tasks. These were first-generation Latino students in their first year at UCLA, which is a very academically demanding place. So here's the key finding. The Latino students who were asked to write about their families and who took part in the elect, um, took part in the experiment after the election and the inauguration performed worse on the cognitive task than those who had taken part before the election. They couldn't concentrate as well as the students who wrote about their families before the election. So there were several other groups in the experiment, like one had to write about your fa favorite restaurant, but it was only the group who were asked to write about their families whose cognitive performance was worse after the election. So you, from this you can see how disruptive Trump's election and his racist anti-immigrant rhetoric was to these first-generation Latino college students. They were in their first year, they were making the transition to a demanding academic environment, and undoubtedly they were having trouble studying when something happened to trigger their thoughts of family. In fact, one a student who was in the um, experiment after Trump she practically started crying and said that being asked to write her about her family was very, seemed very personal to her. Wow. Nobody started crying before Trump was elected in that condition or any condition. Now, most Latino families in Los Angeles are a mixture of documented and undocumented. So many students were probably very fearful about their family members, even their parents being deported. So I did a little research on my way here. In, I was in an Uber. And uh, he, uh, I'm kind of an anthropologist rather than a psychologist at heart. So he was Latino. I found out he had voted. He had voted for Clinton. Um, so, he, you know, he was a citizen. Um, so I asked him, um, I said, um, do you have any members of your family who are undocumented? He goes, yeah, my parents, my girlfriend's parents, and now we have somebody else in the family who just had a newborn baby, and they're really worried, they're undocumented, they're worried about ICE coming and getting them. Hmm. So you can see this fear is How very wide, widespread. On, on that uh, subject, pivoting off of ICE coming, what, what does that look like in the halls of justice, uh, where you may have uh, people living here in Los Angeles who are actually afraid to go to the courts? to well, find solutions to their problems because ICE may be waiting. Well, um, certainly the, um, one of the areas that judges are concerned about is to make sure that we have unfettered access um, to the courts um, by um, anybody. And indeed, we did have um, um, people from um, um, several, um, ICE um, that, that came to some of our, our, our courtrooms. We don't know why. Um, most of the time, a judge can control what goes on in the courtroom. The hallways are public. Um, we had um, the Chief Justice wrote a letter um, to Jeff Sessions in um, March of 2017 um, and was very strong 
um, the, um, about that very issue. And although I don't normally like to talk to people and read, um, but I thought I might read just a couple sentences because I think it really answers the question. And she was a lot more eloquent than I am, but she said our courts serve as a vital forum for ensuring access to justice and protecting public safety. Courtrooms should not be used as bait in the necessary enforcement um, of our country's um, immigration laws. Um, most Americans have more daily contact with their state and local governments than the federal government, and I'm concerned about the pub impact of public trust and confidence um, in our state core system if the public feels that our state institutions are being used to facilitate other goals and objectives, no matter how expedient um, they may be. She ends and she says, I respectfully request that you refrain from this sort of enforcement in California's courthouses. Um, she copies um, um, Governor Brown and Senators Feinstein and Harris um, on that letter. And it did have some effect. The um, number of um, reported incidents um, went way down. Um, we have, um, um, beyond that though, there is still um, the, um, 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 we think, um, there still are a lot of people that are um, afraid to use the courts. And I say I think because of course we don't have any, you can't document um, that issue, so we only know it anecdotally where there um, it is reported. And I, before I came today, I talked to some of my fellow bench officers um, on this question, and, and, and there are um, um, ones that reported that, um, that people were um, afraid to come in um, and uh, use the courts, um, or that if you have a situation, let's take domestic violence, because that's the one people talked about, where the issue will come up where somebody, um, the, um, the, you might have the, um, the alleged perpetrator would say, well, if this was so bad, why didn't you um, come in earlier than that? It must not have been that bad. And the response back was, I was afraid. Um, I was afraid that people, um, that I might get deported. Um, or we had situations where um, the, um, the one person would say to the other, um, they um, don't bother to go to court, you're undocumented, they're either gonna arrest you or the judge will never believe you. Um, and it's not just the courts that way. Chief Beck, um, the, the former LAPD chief of police, reported that, um, that, that they've experienced the same thing about um, people being very reluctant to, um, um, to report things to um, the police just, just out of fear. And could I expand that just a little bit as well? Mm -hmm. uh, we need to understand that nationally, two-thirds of Latinos are not immigrants. In fact, in Los Angeles, your average Latino here has been born here since 1790. So immigrants have always been a minority, but a very important minority. So when people talk about immigrants, we need to understand it's not just that portion that is immigrant that is really affected. You know, I'm eighth generation American of Mexican origin. I hear the dog whistle. It's not about immigrants, and it's not about legal immigrants. It's about Latinos, and it's about those who are different, who are not white. We hear that very, very clearly. So it's not, you know, I'm not afraid I'm gonna get deported. Try and deport me, I'll duke it out. But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, there's that chilling effect. You have to stop and think what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there. In the 1930s, massive deportations, we deported out of California one out of every three Latinos, many of whom were U.S. citizens, including Roman Banuelos, the future U.S. treasurer under Richard Nixon. 
many, many U.S. citizens were deported. So it, it's not only the immigrants, although there are specifics, and they talk about it, but actually, uh, I remember after 187 uh, passed and we finally was chipped away, we did a follow-up survey in 2000 for United Way, and we asked Latinos, both immigrant and U.S.-born, how they felt about 187 and everything that happened. And actually, immigrants were kind of, kind of forgiving. Well, Pete Wilson, he was having a bad election. Poor man, <laughs> we feel sorry for him. It was us U.S.-born that you got, they'll never do this again. We really, really felt it. In the, in the data much more strongly than it really resented, even though in theory you could say we weren't the target, we knew what the targets were, and we were mm -hmm. the targets. Mm -hmm. Again. Yeah, um, I mean, it's really racism, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, nobody worries about the immigrants from Canada, yeah. right? Or all the illegal or non-documented mm -hmm. immigrants from China. Or from Ireland. I mean, the president um, made his own classification I mean, of countries I, that are good. I have, uh, I have. To, to get immigrants from in countries that aren't, right? So using yeah. his own language. Yeah. If, you're from right. if you're from Northern Europe, you're okay, right? Especially so, if you're female. So, um, anyway. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Eastern Europe. <laughs> no, I, um, I, have a, I have a story though. My daughter is a filmmaker. When she was in college, she made um, a sort of um, semi-documentary about um, Irish, Irish illegal immigrants, and mm -hmm. her husband is from Ireland, not illegally, but he's from Ireland, so she had, had some access. Okay, so I showed the film in class. So you have these Irish immigrants um, coming by plane, going through uh, immigration and customs like at LaGuardia or JFK Airport in New York. My students, who are probably 90% immigrant, mm -hmm. children of immigrants, international, they could not believe the way these undocumented immigrants were coming. And they were completely unnoticed. They were working, um, et cetera. It was like a vacation for them. Incredible and difference. they were white, by the mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So what, what a, this, this next question sort of stems from a, an obsession that we journalists have in uh, uh, finding the right terminology to, to use to describe leaders that we have sometimes. And occasionally we, we, we try to find a way to, to, to say, you know, if something is a, is, is a misleading statement, uh, if it's false, if it's an outright lie, if, if the rhetoric that someone uses is aggressive, xenophobic, or just explicitly racist. And um, when the president was in Europe, there was an interesting column that ran in The Guardian, which, which I really uh, found a, a very intriguing read, in which the columnist said it flat out, that the president of the United States is a racist. And it's time to say it clearly. It's something that we refrain from doing in our... It's not politically our, correct to say that. Well, I, but is it, but, but is it, is it actctually, is it factually correct from your I point of view? I think it is politically correct, mm -hmm. but it's, I mm -hmm. mean, I, I think when we, when we go through high school, we learn about checks and balances. Mm -hmm. And I think I've been very shocked that we don't have checks and balances. We have a dictator. And I think people are afraid to say what, you know, basically call a spade a spade with him. Interesting time for, yeah, this discussion to be unfolding. Uh, yeah, so. the, um, well, I mean, a lot of people have said he has a lot of different mental illnesses or semi-mental illnesses, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. like being narcissistic. Interestingly enough, um, 
the American Psychiatric Association used to have a category called narcissistic personality disorder. That's just like a neuroticism. It was a, considered neuroticism. Um, it is now gone, so it's now considered normative and normal to be a narcissist. Um, now, the American Psychological Association also has some type of policy that um, clinical psychologists are not allowed to make diagnoses if they haven't personally interviewed and tested the person. But my sister, who's a clinical psychologist, told me they are trying to change that because it is so clear that he is mentally ill in so many different ways ways, but we can't really talk about it mm -hmm. in the same way that it seems hard to do what The Guardian did mm -hmm. and call him a racist. Um, uh, David, in each of the, the cycles that you described of uh, right-wing populists, nativist, 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 na nativist, nativist leaders gaining power in the mm -hmm. country, you know, every 20 or 30 years or so, uh, has there been a, uh, a reaction from the, the Latinos that you described, oh, who, are, who, are, who are citizens and who mobilize. Uh, you know, you mentioned mm -hmm. Proposition 187, but I wonder what, what was it like back in the 30s or in the 50s? Well, we can go back to 1855, uh -huh. to the American Know Nothing Party, the editor of a newspaper here, a Spanish-language newspaper, Francisco Ramirez. Mm -hmm. And every week he would write a column against the Native, and he would make fun of them. For example, they said, they call themselves Native Americans. Well, funny, they're immigrants from Europe. And there's this one nativist uh, religious leader said, we must have true American religion. And Vermita said, I always thought Jesus Christ is from the Middle East and spoke Aramaic. But who knew he was white Anglo-Saxon? He made fun of them. He also got very serious. And one of the children that read his columns was Reginaldo Francisco del Valle, who, by the way, wound up founding the institution that became UCLA, but that's another story. <laughs> and he had to fight against Dennis Kearney in the 1870s, against the American Protective Association in the 1890s, and against the Ku Klux Klan in the 19-teens. There was always an awareness of what was being said, what was intended, and Latinos, those who were able to vote, always voted. It was always part of the Spanish language press. But I guess because we don't read a lot of the Spanish language press, we don't know how they felt, but they felt very strongly about it, took a very strong position, which is why when the American War broke out, Latinos in California almost unanimously supported first Lincoln against the slave states, and then when the French invaded Mexico, Juarez against the French, and the French and the slave states are trying to make a connection, which is again why we celebrate Cinco de Mayo, although we have forgotten that history, mm -hmm. because we have to deal with these other narratives. So a long history of reacting politically. Absolutely. Of mobilizing, of using the free press. That's or, why right. Latinos went to the California Constitutional Convention mm -hmm. in 1849, and by the way, you can find the minutes in Spanish online for all the issues of translation. The translator, William Hartnell, could never really figure out how to say Bill of Attainder in Spanish. So he made up pochismos and everything else. But the, Latinos have been very aware of these mm -hmm. issues. They were very aware from the time Texas went into, mm -hmm. quote, unquote, independent republic of Texas, why they were doing it. It's for slavery and racism, very clearly. As soon as Texas got independent, well, declared its independence from Mexico, they rewrote the Constitution, put in the slave code, put in the black code. They were very clear why they wanted their independence. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say something about another factor that mm -hmm. nobody talks about, but it was a Latina immigrant who first made me aware of this. This used to be Mexico. So we conquered, mm -hmm. or the United States conquered Mexico in California, Arizona, New Mexico. And 
um, it seems to me that besides race, this is an underlying factor in why it's Mexican immigrants that are always the, the immig so-called immigrants, mm -hmm. because they're not immigrants, really. It was theirs. They were conquered people. And I, I had the feeling when 187 came up, people are afraid this will be Mexico again. And that that's an underlying fear that is never spoken about publicly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet it was free territory, slavery is abolished, right. there was racial equality and citizenship, women had rights when it was part of Mexico. I'm thinking, oh, okay, uh, what's the problem here? So, so I, I was just in, a, in another part of the country which used to be Mexico, which is now the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was doing some reporting there on the issue of family separations. And I was, I was talking to people in deep red uh, Texas, rural Texas, not far from San Antonio. And um, it was very interesting, almost, almost to a T, everyone I, I, I talked to said, just send them back, uh, was their reaction. Like, as soon as they show up at the border, the only thing we can do is either put them on a truck or put them on a plane and send them back to where they came from. And I was just like, wow. There, there, there is really very little understanding and awareness of one of the most important qualities of our of our judicial system, which is the, which is the concept of due process um, for citizens and non-citizens alike, right? It's one of the things which has sort of made our country a welcoming place from, well, let me from, from, from time to time. Let me combine these two mm -hmm. observations because Texas was part of Mexico. Slavery had been abolished. But the settlers were coming out from south, bringing their slaves illegally. American immigrants to Texas, yes, right? Yes, Anglo-Saxon yeah, immigrants. Right, that's right. Bringing slaves illegally, although sometimes they'd make the slaves sign it because they knew that slavery is abolished, saying that they would just be uh, servants for life but not slaves. And the reason why you had the Battle of the Alamo is that Santana sent an army to release the slaves. He was telling, release your slaves. This is illegal. You cannot do it. And the Anglo-Americans inside the Alamo were fighting to maintain slavery and white supremacy. Please, not Davy Crockett, freedom and democracy. <laughs> slavery and white supremacy. And they all died. But they forget that. And Texas was part That's of right. the Confederacy, mm -hmm. which is why they did not celebrate Cinco de Mayo during the American Civil War in mm -hmm. Texas. Although most Latinos, but not all, tended to support the Union. You had some Confederate Latinos. But outside of Texas, we celebrated Cinco de Mayo in Colorado, New Mexico, mm -hmm. Arizona here as part of our experience of the American Civil War on mm -hmm. these issues of race, nation, citizenship, and slavery. Right. So Judge Hansel, what, what is the, the, the value in having a discussion about uh, due process and, and perhaps educating people about it and, and increasing awareness of, what, of, of just how crucial it is? Well, due process really goes right back to um, but, um, got its origins back to the founding of the Republic. We got the idea of due process um, from the Magna Carta. And it really, um, at its simplest, it's simply um, preventing people um, from the arbitrariness of government. Um, and it's got, um, it's, it's a balance. It limits the reach um, of the law um, on the one hand and um, fundamental guarantees um, on the other hand, it's sort of it's boiled down um, in um, inside the courtroom into five different things. It's just um, first of all, you have the right to have notice of, of proposed action if there's a government action against you. And what are the grounds? Um, you've got the opportunity to present reasons why the proposed action shouldn't be taken, the right to present evidence, including the right to call witnesses, 
the right to know the opposing um, evidence, and the right to cross-examine um, adverse witnesses. Uh, those are really the five characteristics um, of, um, of due process. Um, it was um, in the Constitution, it was in the Fifth Amendment um, to the Constitution, and, so, and of course for a long time um, there were case law that said that that would not be applied to the states. Then we got the 14th Amendment, um, and it, it, was, um, um, it became into the doctrine of, of all of the states. Um, California was, um, even prior to the 14th Amendment, had um, due process. It really goes um, to the heart of um, what we do as a government and that there are limits um, to the power of the government, and it's to protect um, against um, arbitrary um, behavior um, on the part of government. So it really is, um, in a lot of these debates, it's really, it's a core concept that, um, that I think um, is really very important for everybody to, to understand its history um, and, and what it means. And it certainly has a lot of applicability in many different situations. Great, thank you. Um, uh, we're going to open it up to questioning now for members of the audience. Thank you. Uh, my name is Barbara Dibbs, and a request, first of all, because not all of us were here for 187, so if you could explain what 187 was. And the other is, did I understand you to say when you were talking about the article in The Guardian calling the president racist that the hesitation for American journalists to use that term is because there's a question of whether it's true or not. I feel like you started to say something and then didn't get to finish the thought, so I wasn't sure what the thinking it, it, was. I think it's really uh, an, an open discussion that is uh, quite energetically touched upon every day in our own newsroom and in, in other newsrooms around the country. Uh, how do we describe the leaders that we have and how do we describe the president that we have? Um, partially because it's unprecedented in modern times to have uh, a leader like this who, who uses such language. And maybe we're just playing by different rules, uh, you know, that the, you know, the, the British media may take the gloves off in, in certain instances. Um, you know, there's a, there, are all, there are all these questions about objectivity, and, and we're very careful at the New York Times about the language that, that we use. So it, we put a lot of thought into it. But I thought it was, just from my own personal point of view, interesting and refreshing to read the coverage from abroad of, of, of what was going on. Uh, since I wasn't here in California for much of the, the, the Proposition 187 debate. I can say something. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. It, it was mm -hmm. anti-bilingual education. But it was interesting because they only focused on Spanish. Yeah, that was 227. Oh, that was 227. Yeah, oh, there's a whole bunch. Oh, anti affirmative yeah. oh, action, yeah, anti bilingual. was yeah. taking away all the rights, the right to medical care and things like that. Well, it, yeah, you it was in, <laughs> in theory, it was to deny public services to either undocumented persons or to the parents of children who may be undocumented. And if it, there was, and you have to understand, at the time it was passed, immigration as a source of population growth in Mexico had ceased virtually by 1990. We're actually losing more Latinos leaving the state than coming in. That Latinos had had the highest rate of labor force participation for nearly 60 years, worked more hours per week, set up more businesses, had stronger families, used welfare less, 
had fewer heart attacks, fewer cancers, fewer strokes, lived three, lived three years longer. Yes, somehow Latinos were not American. Uh, so that this was going to make Amer at least California more American by denying services to undocumented or the children of those who may be undocumented. You can imagine how quickly that would uh, expand. Uh, the kids would have to be disenrolled from school, no Medi-Cal, uh, just basically no public service. And of course, as many people understood, this wasn't about undocumented immigrants. In fact, uh, some of us went to meet with then Senator Feinstein because she supported 187 people, forget that. Mm. And her ad was one of the worst ones. 20 years later, when I asked people to remember the worst ad, they remember, they think it was Pete Wilson's, it was hers. Mm. Uh, but that was not a political statement. Just go check it out. It's in my, it's in my book, by the way. I have it all documented here. Uh, it, that she was going to the Mexican border to talk about how bad the situation was. I asked, well, if it's that bad, why don't you also go to the Canadian border? No, nobody ever wanted to do that. Uh, it was very draconian, uh, but eventually he's declared all unconstitutional. And in fact, I believe it's 2008 or 2009, Prop 187 was actually ripped out of the California law books and thrown away because it was totally unconstitutional. And it basically put a target on every Latino's back. Because if I looked like I might be undocumented, I could be picked up. My kids could be kicked out of school. And that's not very constitutional. The last time I looked at the Constitution, it was very draconian. It was very divisive and totally unnecessary, and it passed. I'm a first-generation uh, immigrant, undocumented immigrant from, from Asia, uh, which is in the Philippines. Um, my question is to you, uh, to the judge. Uh, Your Honor, um, with respect to, to ICE and um, the deep uh, situation you know, you know, of deporting and you know, raiding with the ICE, um, is, there, is there any recourse uh, with the justice system to kind of like tell to these to the ICE agents like you to tell them like you know uh, you, you wait a minute and um, wait a minute what what's going on here you know are, are there any some sort of like you know some legal action taken against taken against ICE uh, with respect to like you know raiding uh, undocumented immigrants uh, like myself and you know many of the Latinos around here in California a lot of these issues are federal as opposed to um, state issues um, the um, but, but certainly the discussion I ended with talking about um, due process um, with it, there is, um, there, there's a lot of precedent that um, if you're in the United States um, and you have, let's say, a deportation proceeding um, that's going against you, you have the full panoply or should have the full panoply of due process rights that I uh, that I articulated, and you have a right to remain silent, you have a right to counsel, um, and, um, and so forth. And so that certainly, um, on an individual level, um, that is, say, for a specific case, those are the types of remedies um, you have. And then on the more, if you're talking about on the more macro level about policies in general, that becomes that's less of a judicial question, that's much more of a political question. Um, and for that, I'm gonna to defer to my colleagues um, for a response. Fascinated by this 20-year cycle of nativism and racism, and I wonder if you had some thoughts about what the social forces are that underlie that 20-year cycle in America. Cover the, the, fa the fact of the cycles in the first chapter of this book. They seem to be, at times when a couple of things seem to come together, uh, which 
were kind of lacking this last time around. One is when you have had a wave of immigration and you had had sort of the first noticeable wave by the middle of the 1850s with the Irish immigration fleeing, you know, the famine and everything else. And you had also had some recession during the middle of that period. Uh, in 1878 here, suddenly people notice, oh my God, Asians, Chinese, they're immigrating. They're not, California's not Americans. And you had the post-reconstruction recession in the mid-1870s. Mid-1890s again, you had another recession. You, you started getting then noticeable immigration, not from the Nordic countries, but from Southern Europe, Italy, Greece, etc. Uh, and then as we got to the World War II, again, you had the post-World, I'm sorry, World War I recession, along with the rise of the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan, driven by media, by the way, uh, by uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. So this is nothing new, okay? Fake news, false narratives, but get a lot of press. Twitter of the day, if you will. Uh, and then, of course, in the 30s, we had the massive deportation, and the governor convened a committee, the Committee on the Mexican Problem. Wow. And the committee decided, well, the Mexican problem is the fact that Mexicans are here. So if we got rid of Mexicans, you wouldn't have a Mexican problem. Literally, that was their report, so that's why we deported so many. The 50s, remember, in the early 50s, we had a recession. So there seems to be economics was suddenly discovering, my God, someone's coming and taking all the jobs away from Americans. So that seems to be the case. You have to, but you also need that charismatic party and bringing things together and getting that message that blames this group or that group or somebody else for the problems. We just get rid of them, no more problems. But meanwhile, the streets don't get paved and the garbage isn't collected and the country just doesn't run very well during those periods. Well, building on what you said about economics, I think a huge factor right now is income inequality. And, and the growing income inequality. We don't have a recession because the rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting poor, and the middle class aren't doing very well in terms of being able to afford what used to be considered almost middle class entitlements, like a, a house and a college education. And so I think that there's tremendous economic frustration right now, and nobody's talking really about that. That's not a mainstream topic. I mean, how could you elect a Trump who's so rich, believes in income inequality to the, you know, to the extreme? It, it's kind of like people are voting against their own self-interest when it comes to income inequality. Hi, my name is Jeanette Barrera. I'm from Long Beach. I'm a community organizer with contracts here in the LA County um, in terms of public advocacy. So, Mr. Bautista, thank you so much for the historical component because I feel that, unfortunately, many people seem to forget uh, the land that they're occupying now in terms of our historic contribution in it being Mexico. But moving forward, like in terms of being more progressive, right? Um, so where do we go from here? Because as you mentioned, is, this is the story of our grandpappy pappy's day. <laughs> Nothing's changed. This is the traditional, you know, um, agenda in terms of American politics. So how do we change the narrative? Right, so you mentioned that you're eighth generation. Me, without digging very far, I'm fourth generation, and I'm sure if we dig, we can go even further back about Mexicans being here or Latino contribution. So how do we change that? Is actually create some alternative narratives, even here in California, even here in Los Angeles. We're working, uh, for example, on a paper for health affairs on challenging the American narrative on diversity, race, and health. Because in the medical world, 
as soon as we say race and diversity, we think, oh my God, it's gonna be a bunch of health problems. We're pointing out, oh, that's what the narrative says. It's not what the data say. And in fact, there are tremendous opportunities when you consider race and diversity and health, but taking away the, if you will, the blinders and actually looking at the data. California is 62% diverse. We're the most diverse of the major states. We're the second healthiest state in terms of overall age-adjusted mortality, infant mortality, life expectancy. We're the most diverse, and we're the, one of the healthiest. The only one healthier than us is Hawaii. They're even more diverse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so my question was um, that um, we definitely know that words are powerful, and we talked a little bit about, well, a lot, about um, how um, they have affected people and how they feel, how they perceive that they are going to be um, harassed or um, um, experience racist events or the fear that they feel. Um, how accurate, do this is for the whole panel, do we feel like it goes the other way? Are the words actually emboldening people to have more courage to act out in that sense of racist acts there? Well, you mean, you mean, do they translate into actual hate crimes? Yes. Well, what we saw after Proposition 187 uh, and I've often said, in about 50 years, I will shake Pete Wilson's hands. You know, ever since I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, I've been trying to get Latino immigrants to become citizens and register and vote, and it was almost impossible. And I'd ask, well, why don't you register and vote? Ah, you know, I'm going to retire, maybe voy para Mexico. And I just couldn't do it. After 187, Latino naturalization just skyrocketed, and of course, also registration and voter participation. So Pete Wilson, with his crazy legislation, accomplished something I and my colleagues of the Chicano area had been unable to do, is to get people off the dime and get involved in the process. My name is uh, Cynthia Aguilar, and I pretty much had the similar question on the, along the same lines. Um, it was more towards the whole panel, but also in, in um, I feel like in, um, like in media, um, political consciousness, I feel like, is talked about more, or people are feeling more confidence in just using, like you said, like the language. Uh, I feel like artists and celebrities um, feel like they're, they can more easily express what their politics are. So would you say that, that this is kind of like the natural wave, like you were saying, of the 20 years of people are kind of waking up? Um, how would you, what would you address this to? we need to create different narratives about how we deal with race and diversity in this country. Because even though we're very liberal, as soon as you mention race and diversity, people start to throw up their hands, oh my God, horrible problem, never gonna be able to fix it. When in fact, there are tremendous opportunities, I see from the data in race and diversity, but we need a narrative that starts to frame things in a positive way. And just one example of how important this is, if any of you did not know why we started celebrating Cinco de Mayo, that's the power of a narrative that has erased and effaced a different one. We should know that, that should be every third grade kid should know why we celebrate Cinco de Mayo, because it was created here as part of the Latino experience of the Civil War, and I'll bet that was probably news to most of this audience. Mm -hmm. There are other narratives that need to be brought out and put in the middle of the table as well. Before we close, I'd like to thank the California Wellness Foundation, our partner tonight for making this program possible, so a big round of applause for them. Also, thank you to all of you for joining us. We're so happy to have you here, and the party's not over yet. We're gonna be just outside in the reception in the lobby to continue tonight's really important conversation. And finally, a big round of applause for our featured speakers tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.